can turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Chapter 14 is where we'll be this morning. While you're turning there, I want to specially welcome the Jericho riders who are here with us this morning. You may have noticed their motorcycles under the portico. We don't usually do that, but I think that's really cool. I'd be cool if we had that every Sunday. The Jericho Riders are our local chapter of the Christian Motorcyclist Association that exists to share and show the love of Jesus with people who dig motorcycles. I think that's awesome. They've found a way to take something that they enjoy and use it as a tool to share Jesus with other people. I think that's an incredibly good idea. You know, I think, think many of us, if not most of us, We have grown a little too content to stay within our Christian bubble. It's really easy here in College Station to stay within the Christian bubble, just surrounded at all times by other believers. And yet Jesus has called us to step outside of that bubble and be salt and light to the world. Get to know the people of this world who don't yet know Jesus so we can share Jesus with them so that we can be witnesses of his love to those people. Jericho writers have found a way to do that. They've found a way to take something that they enjoy and use it as a tool to step out of their bubble and be salt and light to the world. Now, I'm not a motorcycles guy. That's not my thing. I'm a car guy. And so weather and, and health permitting, next Sunday, I'm not going to be here with you guys. I'm going to be out at autocross because that's what I love to do. So I'm going to go drive my car fast and I'm going to meet people who don't yet know Jesus and who wouldn't think twice about skipping church on Sunday. And hopefully we'll talk about significant things. Most of the time we'll talk about cars. That's okay. But hopefully that will lead to significant conversations. So if you're into cars, maybe I'll see you out there next Sunday, Riverside Campus. Let's have some fun and then let's meet some people so that maybe we can be light and salt to them. Now, whatever your hobby is, if it's not motorcycles or cars, if it's crafting or gardening or cooking or Zumba classes or whatever you're into, sports, fishing, hunting, whatever it is, find a way to take your passion, your hobby, and use it as a tool to get to know people who don't know Jesus yet so that you can be a friend to them and and be salt and light to them and begin to expose them to the love of Jesus Christ. What you'll find as you start to connect with the people of this world, what you'll find as you step outside of your Christian bubble, is that the things that that often divide us within the bubble, that divide Christians from one another or cause churches to split, the things that divide us within the bubble are very, very small compared to what divides us as the people of Jesus from the rest of the world. So what are the things inside the bubble that we get hung up on? Well, we get hung up on things like worship style and political views and public school versus private school versus homeschool and how to interpret Genesis 1 and how to explain the sovereignty of God. Or our topic this morning, we get hung up on on what to think about tongues or prophecy. You got some churches that believe that tongues and prophecy ended in the first century, you'll never see them again. You got other churches on the whole other end of the spectrum that believe not only are they active, but we should see them every Sunday. And then you got a whole lot of churches in between. But, but what you'll find is that all of these issues that tend to divide Christians, like tongues and prophecy, are so incredibly small compared to what unites us together and separates us from the rest of the world. Because we all, all, all believers in Jesus Christ, we have hope that the rest of the world knows nothing about. And we know an an unconditional, undefeatable love that the world can't even comprehend. 
And we have forgiveness in our lives that can cleanse us of any shame and any guilt. The best the world can do is just blur the lines between right and wrong until guilt subsides. They don't know forgiveness. We all, we have the gospel, the incredibly, stunningly good news that there is a God in heaven who loves us so much that he sent his own son to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us so that we could have eternal life as a completely free gift. Compared to that good news, all those little things that divide us like tongues and prophecy are not that important. And so this morning, we are going to talk about prophecy, and we are going to talk about tongues, but then we're going to talk about something much more important. We're going to talk about how to talk about those issues that divide us in a way that is charitable and that keeps them appropriately small. And then we'll end by doing the most important thing of all. We will celebrate our shared love for Jesus by taking communion together. Okay, so that's where we're headed this morning. So let's set things up. Let's set up a passage for you a little bit this morning. Last week and this week, we're, we're talking about spiritual gifts. That's what chapters 12 through 14 are about in the book of 1 Corinthians. So spiritual gifts. These are special abilities given to believers by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God and the good of other people. And it's the last part of that definition, the two lines hanging down, that that are really the key to understanding what Paul's trying to teach you in chapters 12 through 14. Spiritual gifts are meant for the glory of God and the good of other people. In the church in Corinth, uh, individuals, believers, were using their spiritual gifts for the exact opposite reasons, for their glory and their benefit. So in in the city of Corinth, in the church that was there, believers were using their spiritual gifts to make themselves look good, especially the upfront gifts like, like teaching and preaching and prophecy and tongues. Believers who had that gift, those gifts, were using those gifts to show off, to, to make themselves appear mature and important to the rest of the church. And so Paul's burden in chapters 12 through 14 is to rebuke their pride and to correct their abuse of spiritual gifts. So in chapter 12, which you studied last week with Pat, chapter 12 is all about the equality of all of the spiritual gifts, that all of them are equally important and necessary for the body of Christ to function well. Chapter 13, which you'll study next week with Matt, chapter 13 is about the superiority of love, that it is better than any spiritual gift and that any spiritual gift practiced without love is useless. And then here in chapter 14, Paul is going to focus on two particular spiritual gifts, prophecy and tongues, and he's gonna focus on the one that had become the big issue in the church in Corinth, tongues. Some believers within Corinth who had the gift of tongues were practicing them in a way that made themselves look important. They were just showing off. It was all about them. It was a cause for pride in their lives. And so Paul is gonna correct that. He's gonna rebuke that. So let's look at chapter 14 and let's talk about these two gifts. We're gonna start with the gift of prophecy. Let's talk about this spiritual gift of prophecy. Look with me starting in verse one. Paul says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For one, no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. 
So what is this gift of prophecy? Well, very simple. When you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, prophecy is really simple. It's speech from God to man. Not, not just ideas or concepts, but speech. The prophet is actually speaking on behalf of God. His words are God's words delivered to men and women. Could be believers, could be unbelievers. So prophecy, it is to speak for God. And this message that God gives through his prophet, it's meant to fulfill one of two purposes. You'll see prophecy given for one of two purposes. First of all, to edify the church. That's what Paul meant in verse Three, when he talks about edification, exhortation, consolation, prophecy, it teaches us and it instructs us and it convicts us and it warns us. It's meant to build up and strengthen God's people. So prophecy can edify the church. The other purpose that you'll see biblically behind prophecy is to convince and convict unbelievers. That's what happens all the way, actually, through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God will give prophecy through someone, an unbeliever will hear it, realize that it's prophetic truth, that it's supernatural truth, and be drawn to Jesus or drawn to God. You see that towards the end of the chapter. If you look at verse 24, verse 24, Paul says, But if all prophesy, that's if everyone in the church prophesies, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man, that's a a person who doesn't yet have the Holy Spirit, enters, then he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So when an unbeliever hears prophecy, it convinces him that God is in this place, that God is real and he's here. And then having been convinced that God is here, he's now convicted. He he sees his sin and he's ready to accept the gospel. So prophecy, it's meant to edify the church and to convict and convince unbelievers. And this, this prophecy that does these two things, it edifies the church, that convinces and convicts unbelievers, it can include either or both foretelling or forthtelling. It's kind of weird words. Foretelling, that's, that's what you usually think about with prophecy. It's predicting the future. Telling something that's going to happen in the future. This is Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, when he tells us about Jesus coming back. That's foretelling. Or this is a guy named Agabus, a believer in the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, who receives a prophetic word from God that a famine is about to strike that part of the world. So he warns the church ahead of time. That's foretelling. That's usually what you think of with prophecy. But prophecy can also include forthtelling. That's telling something that's a mystery, that, that, that's private, that there's no way, naturally speaking, that you could know that truth about a person's life, and yet you know it and you speak it. That's, that's forthtelling. And that's what happened to the guy that we just read about. The secrets of his heart were revealed. They weren't talking about future things. They were talking about private things. He hears and realizes, wow, you guys, you know something you should not be able to know. That's, that's supernatural. God is here. Okay, so prophecy, it can include foretelling or forthtelling. It's important to kind of flesh that out so that you see that, that the gift of prophecy is not the same thing as the gift of teaching or preaching. Sometimes those are put together, but it's not the same thing. Teaching and preaching, we use the already revealed word of God, this book right here, and we study it, and we work through it, and then we come together with a way to communicate that to other people. So teaching and preaching are built on the already revealed truth of God. Prophecy is not. Prophecy is totally new truth from God. Preaching and teaching can have errors in them, because they are not the word of God. So I'm, I'm quite convinced that in the past, I have taught you guys things that 
After further reflection, we're probably wrong. I'm sorry about that, but, but I'm human. My, my preaching and teaching are never going to be perfect. I make errors, and that creeps into teaching and preaching. So teaching and preaching are not perfect, but prophecy is. Prophecy is always perfect, or it's not prophecy. Because remember, what is prophecy? It's the words of God, and your God is perfect, and so his words must be perfect. So prophecy, by its very definition, is infallible and inerrant. If somebody claims to have prophecy and and yet there's a little bit of of error mixed in, then none of it is the word of God. None of it is prophecy. It's all true or it's not at all true. It's kind of like an engineer who designs a bridge. And so he designs this bridge and then he's talking to you and he tells you, well, 90% of that bridge that I designed is safe and strong and reliable. It's awesome. Just wait a minute, what, what about the other 10%? What's going on there? It's, well, well, that's junk. I got sick that day, so I just phoned it in. I'm pretty sure they put that part together with duct tape, but the rest of it's really great. Are you gonna drive on that bridge? No, because a 10% that falls in the water is gonna guarantee you don't make it across safely. It's all or nothing with a bridge. It's all or nothing with prophecy. It's totally true or it's not true at all. That's why prophecy biblically must be tested. Anytime someone claims to have a prophetic word, the elders of the church, the leaders of the church must come together and test it for truthfulness. And if there's any part of it that doesn't pass the test, all of it is rejected. Now, how do we test prophecy? It was four tests that the Bible lists for us, four things that the elders would look look at. Number one, what does it say about Jesus? If it doesn't exalt Jesus, it's not God's word. Second, how does it compare to Scripture? Scripture we know is God's word. God never contradicts himself. So if your prophecy doesn't line up with scripture, it's not God's word. Third, they would look at how uh, this prophecy's predictions of the future play out. So if this prophecy includes predictions, do they come true? If not, well, in the Old Testament, they would kill you. In the New Testament, they just ignore you is how that test works. Finally, fourth, they looked at the character of the prophet or prophetess. If this man or woman is not walking with God, then the prophecy was rejected. They had to be walking with the Lord for the prophecy to be accepted as true. Okay, so prophecy must be tested. But now let's ask the million-dollar question, the question everybody wants to know. Is prophecy still around today? Should you expect to see prophecy right here at Grace Bible Church? Well, it depends on how you define the word prophecy because in the Bible, there's two kinds. There's two kinds of prophecy that you will see. First, there's apostolic prophecy, what I like to call prophecy with a capital P. This is prophecy or, or revelation from God that's meant for the entire church at all times. This is the the prophetic word that was given by Jesus and and his apostles and that was recorded in the scriptures. So this is what Paul wrote. This is what Peter wrote. This is the prophecy that is described in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul tells us, he's speaking to us, to believers, you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, that is the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Prophets with a capital P. It's talking about the apostolic prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So the the apostles, the prophets with a capital P, they built the prophetic foundation of the church with Jesus at the center and now the rest of the church is being built on top of that. So when, when we look at that evidence, what we conclude is that this kind of prophecy ended 
with the death of the last apostle. That was John. He died towards the end of the first century after writing the last book in your New Testament, the book of Revelation. Prophecy with a capital P ended with John because prophecy with a capital P can only be written and authorized by an apostle, and there's no more apostles. An apostle scripturally had to see the risen Jesus with his own eyes during Jesus' earthly life. No one can do that anymore. So there's no more apostles, so there is no more apostolic prophecy for the church. No more of that today. There is one foundation that has been laid for all time. That's Ephesians 2. The foundation was laid by the apostles and prophets in the first century. Now the rest of the church is being built on top of that today. There's no new foundation that's needed. So prophecy with a capital P, apostolic prophecy that is God's revelation for the entire church in all places at all times, that is done for today. Okay, but there's a second kind of prophecy that you'll see often in Scripture. It's what I call localized prophecy, prophecy with a lowercase p. It is God's word to a particular person or group of people at a particular time in a particular place. So this is Agabus, remember him in Acts 11. He predicted that a famine was coming to the church in Antioch. That's localized prophecy. It's just for them. It does not come through apostles. It comes through gifted men and women in the church. This is a prophecy that Paul's talking about in chapters 12 through 14. It's a spiritual gift that any male or female believer could have. It's God giving them the ability to speak his words to a particular person or a particular church at a particular time. This type of prophecy could still be around today. This type of prophecy, there's no verse in the Bible that says that this has come to an end. No passage we can go to that says that this has ceased. So this kind of prophecy could still be around today. I would especially expect to see it in a missionary context where the gospel's going to a new group of people who have no reason to to give any credence to Jesus, God may use prophecy to convince them for the first time that the gospel's real. So I wouldn't be surprised to see prophecy going out in missionary places, but what about here at Grace Bible Church? Well, it could be. It could be that prophecy happens here today, but I think that it's unlikely. And here, here's why. Let me explain. I'm not sure of this, but I think it's unlikely because remember that when Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, what did their Bible look like? What was their Bible in first century Corinth? It's only the Old Testament. There's no New Testament yet. All they had was the Old Testament, and they now had a letter from Paul. They didn't even know for sure it was Scripture yet. They're still figuring all that out. So all they have is the Old Testament. So that church needed prophecy with a lowercase p every week to guide them and direct them and teach them because they didn't have New Testament. We do have the New Testament in our language. We have God's prophecy with a capital P. That's what the New Testament is. It's that better form of prophecy, that apostolic, timeless prophecy. We have it completed right here in our hands. This is how God guides the church today. So I I don't expect us to see a whole lot of prophecy with a lowercase p because we don't need it as much as they did because we have God's prophecy with a capital P finished right here. But I can't be dogmatic in that could be that God will speak through someone. God can speak anytime he wants, anywhere he wants, through anyone he wants. So if there's somebody here at Grace who claims to have a prophecy from the Lord, we're not going to squelch that. We're just going to follow Paul's advice. What are we going to do? We're going to bring him to the elders. And the elders are going to run that four-part test on, on them and on their prophecy. And if it passes the test, the elders will have that message delivered to the individual or group to whom it's meant. Because God can speak prophetically whenever he wants. 
So it could happen here. It would surprise me a little now that we have this better prophecy completed from God. So that's prophecy. Now let's talk about tongues. The gift of tongues. Let's pick it up. Look again, chapter 14. Read again with me, verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Now jump down to verse 5. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies, the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, and producing a sound if they do not produce a distinction in the notes, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks? Since he does not know what you are saying. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Tongue in Greek, it's the word glossa. It can mean your actual tongue. It's clearly not what Paul has in mind here. It can also mean a language. And that's what Paul is using here. He's talking about this spiritual gift of being able to speak praise to God in a language that, that you don't know. So that's tongues, the ability to praise God in a language unknown to the speaker. Tongues is always speech to God. So you notice the contrast. Prophecy is speech from God to people. Tongues is speech from people to God. It's always praise. It's always giving of thanks to God. You're just doing it in a language that you don't know. Now, that may be a human language that you don't know, a foreign language. That's Acts 2. So in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon the church, and they begin speaking in all kinds of foreign languages, human languages, like Egyptian. They didn't know it, but they're able to speak it. So could be a human foreign language. It could apparently be like an angelic language. Paul hints at that. If you look at the beginning of chapter 13, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, seems to present that as a possibility. So it's some kind of language, whether it's human or angelic. The key is that it's a language. It is a discernible language. It's not chanting, it's, it's not babbling, it's not humming. It's an actual language, whether human or angelic, that is being spoken. And, and there's two purposes that God gives this gift of tongues, this gift of speaking praise in a language that you don't know. First purpose for the gift of tongues is to authenticate the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what you see in the book of Acts. Chapter 2, chapter 10, chapter 19, the Holy Spirit falls upon people. They begin to speak in tongues, and everyone around them realizes God is in this place. Both believers and unbelievers see, wow, this is a sign of God's power. 
That's why Paul says, if you look down at verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Tongues are meant to show to unbelievers that the power of God is in this place. So that's the first reason God may give the gift of tongues, to authenticate the presence of his spirit. Second reason is to edify the church, to strengthen and build up the church. Look particularly towards the end of the passage, verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification, building up of the church. Now the key is when you look at those two purposes of tongues, you notice tongues is always for other people. It's like all spiritual gifts. I don't know if you thought about it. Spiritual gifts are not primarily for the benefit of the gifted person. Whether you're talking about teaching, preaching, faith, serving, tongues, prophecy, it's never primarily for the benefit of the person who has the gift. It's always for the benefit of other people, whether believers or unbelievers. So tongues, the gift of tongues, is not meant for the person who is speaking. It's meant to bless other people, either unbelievers or believers. Okay, now for either of those purposes to be true to be fulfilled either authenticate the presence of the spirit or edify the church here's the key the gift of tongues must come with a companion gift the spiritual gift of interpretation paul's very clear about that unless god gives the gift of interpretation so that that language whether it's human or angelic can be interpreted then then tongues is no benefit to anyone that's the point verses 7 through 11 he compares tongues to musical instruments a military bugle human languages and he says the key to music to a military bugle to human languages is you have to communicate in a way that the hearer understands Otherwise, the whole exercise is pointless. You blow a bugle in a way that no one understands. No troops are going to do anything because they don't understand what it means. For, for tongues to fulfill the purpose for which God designed it, there must be interpretation. There must be interpretation. Otherwise, the church will be completely in the dark, completely unable to understand. So that's why Paul says, look at verse 27. Down at verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue... It should be by two or at most three and each in turn and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Unless the person can interpret or unless somebody else can help them interpret, they must stay silent because tongues without interpretation just causes chaos and confusion within the church. It's actually even worse outside of the church. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Tongues without interpretation is not a sign of God's power. It's a sign of madness. It's a sign of of silly people. And so that's why Paul says very clearly in verse 13, if you speak in a tongue, pray that God would give you the ability to interpret. So if you believe that you have the spiritual gift of tongues, that's great. But if you can't interpret that language or you don't have somebody in your life who can interpret it for you, then you need to remain silent and pray urgently that God would give the companion gift of interpretation. That's, that's what completes tongues. So uh, just be honest, this is why I, I personally don't see a lot of support for the idea of tongues being a personal private prayer language for a person because that's, 
That's not how spiritual gifts work. They're never for the individual. They're always for the benefit of other people. So if you have the gift of tongues, but you can't interpret, and it's always only a private thing of your life, don't be content in that. Because God didn't give you the gift of tongues for it to stay private. That's not what any spiritual gift is for. Pray that God would give you the ability to interpret so that you can edify and bless other people so that the gift of tongues can be completed. The gift of tongues is, like un, is not like other gifts. It requires a companion gift. Gift of speaking in tongues, the gift of interpretation. So if you speak in tongues but can't interpret, pray that God would work and, so that you could interpret or someone else can interpret. Now that leads us again to the million dollar question, what about tongues today? Should we expect to see tongues in the church today? Well again, there's no verse that I can point to that says that this gift has ceased. No verse at all, no passage at all. I would expect to see tongues in missionary context, just like the book of Acts, where the gospel's going into a new place where they don't yet know the power of God. It would not surprise me at all if people could speak in tongues so that everyone could see the power of God at work. But what about here at Grace Bible Church? Should we expect to see tongues? Well, I would say that it's possible that someone here would be gifted with tongues, but it would surprise me a little bit. And the reason is, is because tongues is like prophecy. They are both revelatory gifts. You are speaking revelation from God, and I don't see us needing that as much as the Corinthians did because we now have this. We have the completed prophetic word of God with a capital P. What God wants us to understand is that this book that you now have in your own language, like 50 different translations you can pick from, probably 10 different Bibles in your house, this book is better than tongues. This book is better than prophecy with a little p because this is God's timeless prophecy with a capital P. Okay, so can tongues happen here? Sure, it can happen. It would surprise me a bit. But what if it does? If a person claims to be able to speak in tongues, what would we do? Well, we wouldn't squelch that. We would bring that person to the elders. We would ask them to practice tongues exactly like Paul describes in chapter 14. So if they can't interpret or don't know someone who can interpret, then they need to remain silent and pray that God would give them the companion gift of interpretation. If they can interpret that language, we'd bring them to the elders who, who would test that word. Is it from God? They'd run the same test. And if it passes the test, then the elders would, would bring that message to those to whom it's meant. Okay, so prophecy in tongues, still possible today. Now that we've talked about prophecy in tongues for a little while, let's talk about something far more important. How do we talk about these issues that divide us? Let's use prophecy in tongues as just an example, something that commonly divides God's people within the Christian bubble that separates us from one another. How do we talk about these issues that divide the people of God? I know of no better answer than a summary statement given 1,700 years ago by one of the church's great theologians, a man named Augustine. He said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Perfect summary. Let's take each of those in turn. In essentials, unity. What are the essentials of the Christian faith? Just a few things. The Trinity. There's one God eternally existing in three equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are all God. That's an essential teaching of Christianity. Inerrancy, that the Bible is God's absolutely true and authoritative word. Gospel, 
that we are saved by faith alone in Jesus alone. Those three things are the essentials, are the, are the heart of the Christian faith. If, if you compromise on any of those, you cannot rightly call yourself a Christian because that is the core of what Christianity is. So if there's something within the church that threatens any one of those three, we're gonna fight that tooth and nail. We will fight that. We will not partner with a church that compromises on any of those three because that is what Christianity is. That's the most essential stuff. Those are non-negotiables. So an example, there are churches out there that teach that the gift of tongues is required to prove your salvation. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not a believer. We will fight that tooth and nail. First of all, it's biblically false. Second, it compromises the third item on the board compromises the gospel by adding an additional requirement to salvation. So we won't partner with a church that teaches that. We will fight that tooth and nail. So in the essentials, we must have unity. But in the non-essentials, we practice liberty. Non-essentials are, are important things, things that we care about, but they're not gospel truth. They're not absolutely non-negotiable central truths of the Christian faith. So these are things like tongues and prophecy. This is how you interpret Genesis 1. This is how you school your children. This is how you understand the sovereignty of God. Those are all important things, but they are not essential things. Godly Christians can disagree about those things. So you, you can study and, and come to your own opinion, and you should. God has given you his word. He's given you his spirit. You should study those important but non-essential issues and come to your own well-thought-out opinion. And then you should discuss that and debate that with other believers who disagree with you. Discuss it because you'll, you'll drive each other closer to the truth. But at the end of the day, if you don't convince each other about those non-essential issues, that's okay because you can set them down and then partner together to share the gospel. And non-essentials should not divide us. Non-essentials should be something that's important that we discuss, but that at the end of the day, we agree to disagree and then get back to work sharing the gospel together. One of my favorite memories of my time up in Washington, D.C. after a and I, I lived up there with a Presbyterian roommate. And so after work, we would grab a cup of coffee and we'd go sit on the porch and we would talk theology, all kinds of theology that we disagreed about. We disagreed about a lot of things, about how you explain the sovereignty of God, about whether you should baptize your infants, about how church should work. We disagreed about all these things, but we'd have this great debate, this great discussion for hours on the porch and then we'd go to bed and then the next night we would, we would get in the same car, drive to the same church where we led a young adult ministry together. So you got like a, a through and through dispensational Bible church guy and a hard reformed Presbyterian working together to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus because those are non-essential issues. And so we discuss them and we debate them and we study them and we have a great time lovingly discussing them with each other. And then we go out and work together to share the gospel because that's what matters most. So in the non-essentials, liberty. And then finally, in all things, charity, by which Augustine means love. In all things, even the essential issues, even with people that you disagree with about something as central as the Trinity or the gospel, still your speech should be clothed in love. That'll be the theme next week when Matt comes and talks about 1 Corinthians 13. It'll be all about love and how love trumps all things in all of our discussions and all of our debates. Love is the most important thing. Why? Why should love trump everything else in our lives? Well, because you worship a God who is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That's his essential nature. 
As the men go back to prepare communion that we'll celebrate together this morning, we're celebrating the love of God. That's what communion is about. You're celebrating the extent to which God loves you. How much does he love you? Well, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much that while you were his enemy, while you were in rebellion against him, opposed to him, working against him, he gave his own son, whom he loves more than anyone else, to be your sacrifice, to die on the cross for your sins. And then God raised his son from the dead for you to to defeat sin and death in your life so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. That's the good news of the gospel, that, that thing that unites us all together, that trumps all the things that divide us. The good news that there's a God in heaven who loves us so much that he gave his own son so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life as an absolutely free gift. You don't have to do anything for it. I'm not gonna ask you to come forward this morning if you accepted the gospel or raise your hand or pray a particular prayer because there's nothing you have to do to be saved. You just gotta believe. You just gotta say to God, yes, I want that. Gotta believe I'm, I'm done working to try to earn your love. I believe and I accept that Jesus earned your love for me by dying on the cross and rising from the dead so that I could be forgiven as an absolutely free gift. That's what we're gonna celebrate in communion. So as the men come forward, to pass the, the bread and the cup. What I want you to do as, as they're passing is I want you to take this moment to give thanks to God. I want you to thank God for a few things. First of all, that he would give his son for you. That God would exchange his own beloved perfect son for you so that you could be forgiven. Second, I want you to give thanks that you have hope and, and you have peace that the world knows nothing about. And third, I want you to give thanks that because of the gospel, we're one family. Even though we disagree about a whole lot of things, we are one family of brothers and sisters that love one another because we are united in Jesus Christ. So take this time as communion passes to give thanks. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this morning we remember. We remember what you suffered and what, what you went through on our behalf. We thank you that you were willing to lay down your life and to shed your blood so that we could be forgiven. We thank you for your incredible love and faithfulness to us. And Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that you have given us hope, you have given us life, you have given us love. We thank you that we have these things that the world knows nothing about. They can't even comprehend the the depth of, of hope and peace that we have in you. But Jesus, I pray that you would forgive us that so often we get caught up in the and the small things that divide us and we make them into big things that distract us from telling the world about you. I pray that you would change us. I pray that your spirit would work in us 
that you would fill our lives with, with your love, that we would be like you, that we would love one another so deeply that we would be willing to work together and to even set aside our, our minor differences and instead work together to share the good news that, that you exist, that you came, that you died, that you rose. I pray that you would make us a family of people who exalt you, Jesus who tell the world about you, who step out of our Christian bubble and, and build relationships with the people around us, who, who share the good news that there's a God who loves them. I pray that we would be a light to them, that we would be salt to them, that we would show them the love of Jesus Christ in word and in deed. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've saved us from our sins, that you've given us hope. It's in your blessed and perfect name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I won't see you next week.